Hello, welcome to another Use of Force. This week, for our week 34 walk around the city, which covers movie locations in Queens, we have an incident that took place involving friendly fire of an officer killing another officer. As such, it does not have a corresponding use of force report but it does fall under our objective to detail the various instances where people were killed during officers fulfilling their duty of enforcing the law. Right, so although this isn't, this incident isn't written up as a specific incident in the use of force report, it is the first Thing listed in the use of force report for 2019. So it's a 99-page document, the, the 2019 use of force report. And on the second page, there's a in memoriam for Brian Simonson, who was a detective first grade of the 102nd precinct and was killed by friendly fire on February 12th, 2019. And just to mention, on the third page of the use of force report, there's also an in memoriam for another officer, Brian Mulkeen, who was killed in a similar type of incident later in the year in 2019. And before we get into this, I'd like to just mention because it's something that Mike and I have talked about off audio and a number of times while we've been doing this, you know, every week I'm, we're going into the use of force page on the NYPD uh, website and pulling up the incident reports. And the 2019 use of force report was only just posted about a month ago. And it were midway through February of 2021. So I'm saying that sort of, I'm curious what the typical guideline timeline for posting these things is, but I want to make a note of that on here so that we can maybe look into it in the future. Right. Is this, the, this is the first year that we're doing this, and with the coronavirus existing right now, it's unclear how much that plays a role or if this is the timeline previously. Right, exactly. So in this incident, Brian Simonson was killed by friendly fire, as we said. He was responding to a T-Mobile store robbery. There was a man named Christopher Ransom and there was another man with him. Christopher was carrying a fake gun and was in progress of robbing the T-Mobile store when Detective Simonson and his partner arrived. They got there just before many other police officers arrived and the person that was that was robbing the store, Christopher Ransom, charged towards the officers 
As that happened, seven officers fired 42 shots from both sides of the store. And because Detective Simonson wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest and got shot in the chest, he died on his way to the hospital. Mm. So there's a couple different things I'd like to talk about. Uh, one, there was... There's a lot of mention in the reporting about this that he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest. At that point in time, the NYPD had patrol guidelines that say detectives must wear vests when performing enforcement duties, such as making an arrest. Otherwise, it's up to the detective. And this was not specifically enforcement duty for him. He was... He heard the call and he responded, but he wasn't actively sent out onto the call. Mm -hmm. So since this has happened, there's been a, an, a push to make more lightweight vests for the detectives that fit into their outfit or under their outfit. So, you know, you can picture the police officers typically wear a lot of layers and are very bulky, mm -hmm. but the detectives wear a suit and tie. Mm. So there was a lot of conversation after this incident about why he wasn't wearing the bulletproof vest. And people were saying, you know, it doesn't really fit under the detective's uniform comfortably. So there's been this push to redesign the bulletproof vest and to make it something that all officers are wearing yeah. for safety. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I think it would be an improvement to make bulletproof vests that aren't so clearly apparent mm -hmm. on officers because I think it creates a situation or just creates an atmosphere of interacting with the person. And on the other hand, it would be great if we could figure out a way to have it so that officers don't need to wear bulletproof vests. Yeah, of course. Ideally, right, the amount of times that there's gunfire would go down and it would just be safer overall for yeah. everyone. Yeah. So... There's a number of other different things to talk about revolving this incident. Um, of course, as you could imagine, everyone from the police department, the detective's family, friends, there's a bunch of different conversations, interviews, quotes about how good of a person he was. He was commuting from the North Fork on Long Island into Queens every day, which was a 70-mile commute one way. And he was doing that because he had developed a relationship with the community in Queens. And, you know, that was something that a lot of people pointed to as it's obviously a really long commute for someone to have. And he had been on the force for long enough that he could have easily asked to be transferred to somewhere closer to home or have a desk job or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
there was also a lot of conversation around, you know, just in general, what a nice guy he was. His nickname was Smiles. And it, I, you know, it's as you would expect, of course, this is a, a tragic thing that happened. And everyone that knew him and is involved in the police force was um, very upset to have lost him. The police commissioner, James O'Neill, also in speaking about how Detective Simonson was a such a good police person, he was also defending the other cops because, again, as you might expect, this is a very confusing incident. There's police officers shooting at one man from all different directions, 42 shots are fired. You know, when you're dealing with friendly fire, um, people, I think it's the police NYPD is always quick to defend the police, but especially in this, he was saying the quote, those cops responded to a call for help. They did not hesitate and they are not to blame. The two people responsible for Brian's death, the only two, are the career criminals who decided to go to that store on Tuesday night and commit an armed robbery. So that's a quote from Commissioner James O'Neill. And that's something that was, this was new to me, that apparently in New York State and in a number of other states around the country, if you are involved in a crime which leads to someone's death, you can be charged with murder, even if you had nothing to do with the death of the person. Hmm. So in this case, Christopher Ransom, who was 22, 27, he was also injured in this. He was shot eight times, but he did not, uh, you know, none of those shots were fatal. Mm-hmm. He is charged with aggravated manslaughter, robbery, assault, and menacing. He had a second person with him, Jogger Freeman, Mm -hmm. who was acting as a lookout, and he was also arrested on robbery, assault, criminal possession of a weapon, and also on murder. Mm. So both of these young men that were there, you know, it's not, I personally, I don't feel like there's, you know, it's not an excuse for the robbery, but now they're also charged with murder and aggravated manslaughter, which is, I mean, personally, I just feel confused about that. I'm not sure that I agree with that law. You know, I I do understand that the circumstances that got all these people into that space and that led to this person's death, if, you know, if these two people hadn't chosen to rob the T-Mobile store, none of it would have ever happened, sure. But also there's so many other factors here that, I don't know, I just... Yeah, it seems like... It could be 
a hindrance to uh, to solving the larger problem. Right. It it seems like a way to divert responsibility from the police and give a way for people who are looking for answers, either the public or the immediate family members, to give them a channel for their feelings. That's how I feel as well. And, you know, I also don't know that I would necessarily say that the officer that did fire the shot that killed the detective, I don't know that I would necessarily just say clearly that that person should be on trial for murder either. No. But I don't, I just don't think it's, I think in this case, like, it's an unfortunate event. They also, in this particular incident, don't know who shot him. So because seven different people fired their weapons all at once and they were coming from different directions, they they aren't sure which other officer actually was the one that shot the specific shot that killed this detective. And it yeah. did go through ballistics examination and, you know, it came out un- inconclusive, which, yeah, I'm not sure how much of that is that they just, it's an easy thing to say, like, well, seven people fired their guns and we don't know which one it was and it's tragic and anyway the the person we point to is the the person that's easier to convict or if they truly don't know yeah i can with respect to the first half of this i can i don't think i don't think empathize is the word but i can I can understand how, from the perspective of a career law enforcement official, either the person that's on the location and needing to make the decision about firing, or the administrative person looking to figure out how to continue to make their department function, would lean on this idea of being able to charge the instigators with all of the responsibility. I I do find it a little harder to believe that they could not figure out who shot the person. Right. But I I also could see how that would be difficult for them because they're they're dealing with a a black and white situation or they're being asked to evaluate things in black and white. Mm-hmm. I also think removed from it emotionally that it doesn't really matter who shot this person. Right. But I do think that they could figure it out if they yeah. really, if there was a reason for them to do so. I think it said that they had narrowed it down to like, most likely one of two people, one of two officers. Right. And the only way I can imagine maybe they can't figure it out, and of course I'm very much not a ballistics examinator, so maybe there's an ex, you know, things I'm missing, but 
I think that all the NYPD have the same gun. Mm -hmm. I think they probably all have used the same bullets. And then if people, if there were two people standing right next to each other, so like you're looking at angles, I can see how that would be difficult to figure out. In, in a typical examination, I would think it would be a little bit easier because like maybe people all have different guns and maybe there's some kind of like identifying marker on the bullet. But in this case, it's all NYPD material. Yeah. So I'm not sure. And I mean, obviously, we'd, we're not going to know. Yeah. And they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're just, they're just not going to communicate that. Right. And they're not going to communicate it to the, the, the people that fired the bullets that could be those two because right. it living in this state of ambiguity is ultimately a better way to cope with the situation than anything else. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, if, now, should the public have that information? I mean, that's a, a discussion probably that is worth having. Yeah. But, hey, you know, I don't know. I mean, the only reason that I think the, the police maybe should know is that, you know, they were there were seven people from different angles in the room all firing at one person, and one of their you know, their own policemen got killed, if they want to do better training, like right now, not knowing who fired the shot that killed him means that they also have no additional information for, hey, if you get into another situation like this, if you're standing opposite, you know, if you're standing like opposite of your colleague, don't fire your gun. Or if you're standing at a 45 degree angle or whatever, like, I do feel like it could potentially give more information to avoid future incidents like this. But also, maybe they should be doing more training to avoid future incidents like this with, you know, training that teaches the officers not to fire their, like, just in general, how to restrain someone without the use of firearm. Right. Um, or just yeah, let the person run away with the items in question and do the detective work afterwards yeah. to find where these people are. Well, I think that the issue in this incident is that the person, Christopher Ransom, did have a fake gun. And he was running towards the officers. Yeah. So I think it was more about trying to not have him harm anyone. Right. Rather than letting him get away with items. Right. Okay. But, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. So I mean, these, are all, these are all judgment calls. We've said it in many of these episodes and it's difficult. Right. Right. It's, you know, I'm not taking away from this is a hard job. I don't want this job. You know, they're put in a position where they have to make decisions that in the heat of the moment. But, you know, anything that can be done to make it so that better decisions are made, I think is great. And again, I, I think just speaking again about this law that someone who didn't actually have intention to harm but was there to steal something 
can be tried for murder, it there's that really that rubs me the wrong way. Um, and just to talk about that a little bit more, there were interviews with Christopher Ransom. He has a difficult history. He was 27 at the time. He had a you know parents that had trouble with drugs. He had been arrested 25 times for all sorts of different reasons. He had mental health issues. He was understood himself to be bipolar and to also have other mental health issues that he didn't have a diagnosis for. In different interviews, and even within the same interview, he had three different stories for what his reasoning was to be in that cell phone shop. He said in one answer that he was just pulling a prank, that he was just there. He calls himself a comedian, and I guess he does some comedy. And yeah, he was saying that this was a prank and that this was like a comedy stunt. And then he also said that he wasn't able to keep a job or get a job because of his history of being arrested and because of his mental health history. So he needed the money. And then in another part of the interview, he said that he was trying to commit suicide by cop because he couldn't, he had been to jail and he promised himself he wouldn't go back. So whether or not he's referring to just maybe having those thoughts in the moment when he realizes that he's going to get caught, that's kind of how I'm understanding it. But ultimately he's, how do I say this? The part of the reason that I think I'm having trouble with that law that allows this person to also be charged for murder is that this, this person has been arrested 25 times before. This person has interacted with law enforcement. This person has been failed by the system. This person, you know, there's so many other things that I don't, that law saying, well, someone decided to rob a T-Mobile store and then someone else died kind of because of that. I just feel like you could also easily say that, well, this guy decided to rob this T-Mobile store because police didn't really get him into the right facilities the 25 times before he got to that point. You know, and then why did he do those 25 times? Oh, it's because of his upbringing. It's because he didn't have role models. It's because he didn't have access to mental health support. Like, there's just so many... Yeah things that you can go back into and it's like are we charging all of those things with murder because that's the story is always going to be bigger than just what happened in that one set of an hour or you know a day yeah yeah that makes sense i mean the the description of him having three different reasons for why this thing happened is a pretty good demonstration of the fact that he did not exist inside the system. He was not capable of navigating the system as it exists, which right. is something we've talked about on other 
episodes. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a very uh, acute or astute point that where does, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line or where, where does the murder actually go? The, he, he just, there was never, there was never a, a version where he was going to succeed anyway. Right. And should he have been stealing from this T-Mobile store for any of those reasons? No. Right. Of course not. But it doesn't seem like he had the capabilities to exist in this world. And we haven't been developing ways for people that are struggling in that way to thrive in our society. Yeah, or to even see them as fellow humans. I mean, I think I just want to read one more thing that I feel like actually made me start thinking about it in this way. There's a couple quotes from both Christopher Ransom and someone that's involved in the Detectives Endowment Association. So, I had no intention to hurt anyone, Ransom recalled during a call from Bellevue Hospital. I want to tell the Simmonson family how sorry I am. In response to that, Detectives Endowment Association President Michael Palladino dismissed Ransom's apology, saying, quote, Sorry doesn't quite cut it. It's time for Mr. Ransom to take responsibility. He has engaged in a lifetime of crime and bizarre behavior. And I completely understand that response, but it also is just fully lacking in humanity. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, just saying it's time for him to, he's not, I'm not going to hear the apology. It's time for him to take responsibility. He's engaged in a lifetime of crime and bizarre behavior. Like, wh- I just feel like I want that guy to think about what that response is, what his response is, this Michael Palladino. Yeah. And recognize that, okay, yeah, this person has engaged in a lifetime of what you see as crime and what you see as bizarre behavior. He's trying, he's saying he's sorry. He's saying he had no intention to hurt anyone. He's probably trying his best. And unfortunately, his best probably just doesn't fit into what we deem appropriate for society. Yeah. And truly what is appropriate for society. Like, if you want to have a society, you can't have people running around stealing phones and doing, you know, he has... Well, that's the that's the and determinus of his behavior. It's entirely possible that some of the things that he did to get arrested or whatever that started him down this path are acceptable behaviors in a certain type of society. And I guess just to give a little more of a story to it, there was because he also refers to himself as a comedian. There were things that he did, such as. making up a fake resume so that he could intern with a judge at the Brooklyn courthouse. He also showed up in his underwear and a cape to one of the precincts, calling himself like super police and saying he wanted to join the force. So it seems like 
stunts and things that may, maybe they are funny to him and, you know. I just, I feel like this whole, the whole incident is so, is tragic and unfortunate and I feel for everyone involved. And I just, you know, I hope that there's, or I wish that there was some way to help people more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is too big for me to articulate on the spot, but I do think it's worth saying that it it is really illustrative of, or Mr. Palladino's comments are kind of illustrative of the idea that it's like, you know, we use ideas like black and white, like in terms of like society, black skin and white skin as like, like in racial strife and inequality to try and like figure out what the problems are and how to address them. But it's, it, it, it starts because we, we live in a, a world where these factors were set into motion because of skin color, but there are plenty of people of uh, people of color that want to live in this system where like the existing law and order system want to abide by all of these things, but for reasons of like not being uh, adapted to the system are going to be at a disadvantage constantly and they're people with a viewpoint like mr palladino is like they just they they need to have more tolerance for for people that just if they don't have the experience and have not had the access there's there's just going to be not only are there going to be the people that are total outliers where they they just don't know how to interact in the system but then there are people that are just partial outliers yeah. and they they shouldn't be punished just because they're partial outliers right especially yeah if someone's trying to work with within the broader system and within maybe their their smaller community system and they're trying to make it all work like Yeah, there should be a little more patience with each other, I think. Yeah. And assistance. If you're already in the system and you know how it works and you see someone that doesn't know how it works, it doesn't hurt you to just show them how it works and, like, help to teach people how to get by. Yeah. And also recognize that there are ways that you are probably existing outside of the system and you know that you're able to navigate outside that black and white because you are familiar with both the people that are in charge of the system and you've seen from experience how other people skate around the edges of it right and uh, people that don't have that type of insight into the process won't know to do that the same way that you do. Right. 
and then they'll be punished, even though in terms of, uh, you know, what they're doing being, it's, it's not any more harmful than the ways that you're, you know, trying to skate around the system. Right. I mean, the, the law and the system are meant to buttress the concept of society and there being this kind of shared understanding of what behaviors are appropriate, let's just say 90% of the time, the vast majority of the time. And then whatever those, you know, outliers are, if we say 10%, there's probably 90% of those behaviors that exist inside the 10% that really don't deserve to be punished. They're just kind of things that people are doing to get by in their day for whatever reason. Right. And is, should they be doing it? No. In the classical sense, they shouldn't be doing it. But should they be punished in a way that alters their life trajectory? No. Right. Like, should a man be punished for coming in a, a cape and underwear to the precinct? I don't know if he was arrested for that. But, like, just that type of behavior. Yeah. Certainly he was punished in the idea of, like, public opinion. If this is, the you know, one of the things that we've read about, it was because... It was considered bizarre behavior, right? And it set into motion a further uh, ostracism, right? Whereas, if you really, you know, take a breath and figure out, like, why are you calling that bizarre? Also, like, did it make the people in the precinct scared? Was that why? Because it's something they weren't used to seeing, and that's okay. <laughs> hmm. And can that be communicated? That like, this makes people feel scared. Or this makes people feel threatened or this makes people confused because it's just very different. And maybe, you know, just like having conversations, I, I just, I'm not sure exactly how that played out as far as whether he was actually arrested for that or whether that was, you know, a moment that he went to jail. But I think, I don't imagine that it played out in a way where there was a nice open conversation about like, why maybe you wouldn't want to do something like that in the future. Yeah. Well, I think we've we've had a general conversation now that kind of links us to a lot of what we talk about on here. And I think we've also really covered the details of this particular incident. As always, if anyone listening has anything additional about this incident or any of the incidents we are talking about or anything on the subject of NYPD use of force in general, please feel free to get in touch with us and otherwise we will talk to you again next week. Bye.